Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Temple of Diana. It's also known as the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was in the city of Ephesus. It was the largest of all of the Greek temples, four times larger than the Parthenon. It was made of pure marble inlaid with gold. It was 420 feet long by 240 feet wide. It had 127 pillars leading up to the roof to hold up the colonnade. It rose 60 feet high. Antipater was an ancient Greek poet who wrote the Greek anthology. And he had visited all the other seven wonders of the ancient world. The pyramids, the statue to Zeus, the Colossus of the Sun, the hanging gardens in Babylon. But when he entered the city of Ephesus and he saw the temple of Artemis for the first time, here's what he wrote. He said these words, But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, next to the sun itself, nothing looks so grand as the temple of Artemis. Now why do I bring up the temple of Artemis to you this morning? It was the architectural wonder in the town of Ephesus where Timothy pastored and this church was located. So every day when Timothy got up and left his house or his church members got up and left their house, they would see towering in their city the temple of Artemis. These pillars... These buttresses, 127 of them. And this was a reminder that this was a temple to sexual immorality and pagan idolatry and all manner of perversion and evil. Because Diana, Artemis, she was a fertility goddess. She was the goddess of sexual immorality. And everything under the sun took place in that temple. There was temple prostitution. There were criminals and thieves that would come in off the ships because it was a port city. It was a museum that had all these statues, lewd pictures. This was a reminder to Timothy that Artemis and Greek mythology and this temple was a temple and buttress to gross immorality and perversion. Now, why did Timothy need to be reminded from Paul about the nature of the church. You see, what we're going to look at this morning, Paul calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth. 
the pillar and buttress of the truth, not the temple to Artemis. That's the pillar and buttress to idolatry, to paganism, to perversion. And so we live in a world just like Timothy and the church that he, that he was pastoring of gross immorality, of rampant sexual idolatry and evil all around us. And so we need to understand that Jesus Christ reigns supreme, not pagan idolatry, not the temple of Artemis, but that Christ and His church and His gospel. So the question we've got to ask this morning is, how do we as a church shine the light of God's truth in a world of darkness? How do we remain faithful to the Bible and to the Lordship of Christ alone? And Paul writes these words to Timothy to remind him and the church of what we truly are all about. Now we get to this section in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the purpose of Paul's letter. It's the thesis. It's why he writes 1 Timothy. So if you've got your Bible, let's look together. We're just going to look at these few passages of Scripture this morning. And so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. This is right on the heels of the past few weeks we've been looking at elders and deacons and how the leadership structure of the church is supposed to be ordered under God's good design. So here we go in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that... Okay, Paul, why are you writing? He's going to tell us. Verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here is the main thrust, the big idea, the central theme of this passage of Scripture. It is this. Our church must urgently confess and defend the truth. I'm not talking about other churches. I'm thankful for all the other churches in our community. I'm thankful for all the other churches. But this church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, we must urgently confess and and defend the truth. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm in prison, and if I delay, if, I, if I'm not there in time, I'm writing this letter to you to tell you how you ought to behave yourselves, how you ought to conduct yourselves in the life of the church. Timothy, you live in a wicked culture. You're being bombarded by false teachers. You live in the town with the temple of Artemis. You go out there every day. You see the pillar and buttress of this pagan temple. But I'm here to remind you that you are the pastor of this church, and how should this church live? in a wicked culture and so what Paul gets to the point here is the very nature function mission purpose of God's church and what we see before us are three truths concerning the nature of God's church so let's explore these this morning here's the first we see the character of the church the character of the church or the identity of 
the church. And Paul gives three beautiful metaphors or three images or three descriptions of the church. So what does he first call the church? He first calls us the household of God. There in verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now when you think of a household, what do you think of? You should immediately think of brothers and sisters, a family, believers united together as a family of faith, a household. God is our heavenly father. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we serve our Lord Jesus as brothers and sisters. And so this whole idea of being the household really ties to this whole idea of being the temple, the dwelling place of God. It goes back to Old Testament imagery of being the household of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you were God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? You as an individual believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you individually, but also corporately as God's body, as God's family, as God's household. The Spirit dwells in us corporately. This was read earlier by Mickey during our time of confession. 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are the temple, the family, the household of God, interconnected together as brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The family of God. Brothers and sisters, part of the the household. And Paul talks about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together through Jesus Christ in the gospel in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, there's something very unique about who we are as believers. We are the household of God. Now, we are individual members of God's family, but we're interconnected together as the household, as brothers and sisters, being together in dynamic family unity. 1 Peter 2, 4-5, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the imagery here is that of being a family, being interconnected, brothers and sisters in Christ interconnected as God's household, as God's family. We are united together in fellowship. And that's the first description that Paul gives of the church, the household of God. But notice the second description. He calls us, The church of the living God. The living God. Now, why does Paul call us the church of the living God? Why is it important that he would say living God? Now, remember, where are they living? They're living in Ephesus. 
There's the temple of Artemis right outside their door and all these pagan dead, lifeless gods and goddesses all around them. And Paul says, listen, you may live in the town of all these pagan gods and goddesses, but we serve the living God, the one true and the living God. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world... And everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You can't contain God in a temple because he's the living God. Now this idea of God being the living God goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We see it all throughout the scriptures. He's the living God. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God, the living God? This was read to open up our worship service, Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. He is the true and living God. We also see this in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's the living God. He's the true God. He's the only God. We are the church of the living God. Later on in 1 Timothy, or earlier, we, we read this in 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And then Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God does not live in temples. God does not inhabit idolatry. This would have been very familiar to Timothy and his audience, his church, as they're, they're seeing the temple of Artemis, how impressive it would have been, all these false gods and goddesses. No, God is a living God. And, and here's something very unique about God being the living God about the Holy Spirit indwelling us. There is something uniquely special that happens when we gather together as God's people on the Lord's day in His worship. God uniquely dwells among us in a very unique way in gathered corporate worship. Something you cannot get at home by yourself in front of a TV screen something you cannot get out by yourself in nature, but there's something uniquely special when God's household, God's family gathers together for worship and the living God comes together in our midst. And so whether you know it or not, the living God is here right now in our midst and he dwells among us. And so here's the point. You don't want to miss church. You know why? God may show up and you don't want to miss it. He may show up in a very unique and powerful way when we're gathered together as his people. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 10, 24, or the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are the household. We're the family of God. We're the church of the living God. But then the third description Paul tells us is that we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The pillar and the buttress of the truth. Now, the pillar, 
These were the upright columns that held up the colonnade. Remember, the Temple of Artemis had 127 of them, the pillar. And so what the imagery here is that the church holds out the truth. The the idea is permanence, to, to hold out the truth, to not abandon the truth, to stick with the truth, to not compromise on the truth. You see, the church is privileged to hold out the truth to a wicked world that is in darkness. We uphold the truth. We hold out the truth. We proclaim the truth. In Philippians 2, 15-16, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now let me just stop right there. Do we not live in a crooked and twisted generation yes <laughs> we do but what are we doing as God's people in this crooked and twisted generation you shine like lights in the world and how do you shine you're holding fast the word of life you're holding fast now in the Greek text that word holding fast can mean you're holding to the truth or it could mean you're holding out the truth I think it goes both ways as you hold fast to the truth you're holding out the truth to a lost and dying world that needs to know the truth and so as the pillar of truth we're holding out that gospel truth we're defending it we're holding it out Jude verse 3 beloved although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the pillar is how we hold up or hold out the truth. The buttress, that's the foundation. That's the foundation of the truth. So the scriptures, God's truth is our foundation. We, we stand on it. It's our defense. The church is built on the solid foundation of the authoritative, unchanging word of God. We stand on the truth, we stand for the truth, and we hold out the truth to a lost and dying world. John Calvin said this about this imagery. He says, The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Could it have been described in loftier language? Is anything nobler? or more holy than that everlasting truth which embraces both the glory of God and the salvation of men. What a great title that we have. The pillar and buttress of the truth. Francis Schaeffer, many of you are familiar with him. He was a theologian back in the 70s and 80s. Wrote a lot about culture and engaging culture. And he said this. This was back in the 70s. Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. I think it's quicker than that now. Tell me what the world's saying, tell me what the world's doing, tell me what the world values, and then the church will catch up and start following the world. Sadly, that defines a lot of churches in our land today. They're mimicking the world. They're copying the world. They're acting just like the world. They're not a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, when you think of a pillar and buttress of the truth, it's not like we're holding up little poles trying to keep a shack from falling over. No, the church is standing on the the pillar 
and the buttress of the truth, which means that when we hold fast to God's word, we are on a sure foundation. We are victorious. We are triumphant no matter what comes against us. And, And I've said this many times before. If we hold fast to the truth, things will come against us. The world will hate us. Culture does not like what we say. The devil will attack. But I want to remind you of Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God's for us, who can be against us? So what are these three descriptions of us as a church? What's the character of the church? We're the household of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, interconnected in dynamic relationship. We're the church of the living God, not, not a dead God, but the living God, the one true God who dwells with us. And number three, we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We hold fast the truth. We hold out the truth. We, we stand on the truth, no matter the consequences or opposition from the world. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in the garden right before he was crucified in John 17, 17, said this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We as a church must stand on this truth no matter what. What the consequences, what the fallout, we stand on the truth as the church of the living God, as the household of faith. So that's the first thing we see here is the character of the church. But the second thing we see, and we've been looking at this over the past few months, the conduct of the church. Notice what Paul says there. In verse 15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Some translations say conduct, conduct themselves, lifestyle. How is the church supposed to act? What's our conduct? What should define the things that we do? do as a church well whether you realize or not over the past few months we've been looking at that going all the way back to chapter two so if you go all the way back to chapter two verses one and three talk about how we are to be a people of prayer of diligent prayer that's how we're to conduct ourselves as people of prayer you go on to read chapter two focused evangelism we're to share the gospel with people so that they can get saved men taking the lead in prayer Men lifting holy hands in prayer, not quarreling. Men being leaders. Dads being the leaders of their homes. We've talked about women being godly examples of what it means to be women of modesty and propriety and submissiveness and gentleness. We've talked about the qualifications of elders and deacons and how spiritual leaders in the church need to be biblically qualified. And then we've talked even today about the church of the living God, what it means for us to be a, a family, and then a church that stands on the truth. That's how we're to conduct ourselves. Are we praying? Are we doing evangelism? Are men taking leadership? Are women being godly? Do we have qualified biblical elders? Do we have qualified deacons? Are we standing on the truth? Is this how we're conducting ourselves as a church? And that's why I've spent so much time over the past few months on this, because it's important for you to know how does a church order itself under God's good design. There's a lot of things going on in churches that aren't really biblical. How is a biblically ordered church supposed to function? And the question we've got to ask in light of this is, how are we doing? How are we doing in these things? How is our conduct? How is our lifestyle as a church? How do we measure up? 
of what God tells us to do. Remember, Jesus is the senior pastor of Emmanuel. I'm not. And it's Jesus' church. It's Christ's church, and he tells us how we are to behave. And we don't have a right to change how he has ordered for us to conduct ourselves. He is Lord, and we submit to him and his design for how we conduct ourselves as a church. So we've seen the character of the church. Those three descriptions. We've seen the conduct of the church, and whether you know it or not, we've been looking at that over the past few months. But then the third thing we see is the confession of the church. None of this matters if we don't have a solid confession. We've got to have a confession of truth. And notice what Paul says there in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess. This is a confession. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So, notice it's the mystery of godliness. So you cannot separate your confession of faith from your lifestyle. You cannot cannot separate what we believe from how you live. They go together. What we believe will impact how we live. How we live impacts what we believe. This is the mystery of godliness. And notice that Paul says, great indeed. Great indeed. It's a very rare word. I think it's the only time that it shows up in the New Testament. And here's what it means literally. It means undeniably, irrefutably. This is what we undeniably confess. Great indeed is this confession. Now, why would Paul say, great indeed? Would the people in the city of Ephesus have ever heard that phrase before? Great indeed. Yes. Do you remember when Paul went to Ephesus and there was a riot at the temple of Artemis because the silversmiths were losing their money because people were converting to Christianity and they were losing profit? Let me remind you of the words that you hear in Acts chapter 19 back in the city of Ephesus related to the temple of Artemis that we've been talking about. And why does Paul use the confession here to this church in Ephesus? Great indeed. All right, Acts 19, 27 through 28. There is danger not only that this trade of ours, this is uh, the, the silversmith speaking. He's, he's rabbling everybody up in this riot and he's, he's making his case to why Paul should be thrown in, into prison. There's danger not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Great indeed is Artemis. That mantra they heard all through the city of Ephesus, all the time. You're hearing people chant, great is Artemis, great indeed is Artemis. And what does Paul do? Paul comes here and says, now wait a minute, time out. Not great is Artemis. Great indeed is this confession of faith, this mystery of godliness. Great indeed is the confession that we hold to. And and it's interesting, this is a confession of faith. It's an early creed. You, You probably notice that in your Bible, it's set apart almost like poetry. It's an early creed, it's an early confession that the early church spoke. And it's a poetic little confession because the first word in the original language all rhyme. 
So there's six stanzas, and the first word in all six stanzas rhyme, and so it was used to help the early church memorize this creed, like kind of how we do the catechism. It was a rhyming confession in the original language. And so we see six truths, great indeed, great truths that we confess, and they all center on the person and work of Jesus. So what are these confessions? What is this confession? What does the church confess? What what, what do we have right here in the Bible that's even before the Apostles' Creed, before the Nicene Creed, before the Athanasian Creed, before the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession? It's this confession right here. What is it? Well, let's look at these six confession statements. Number one, he was manifested in the flesh. This refers to the incarnation, Jesus being born of a virgin and coming in the flesh. So it's talking about how Jesus was born of a virgin. He came in the flesh. He dwelt among us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came in the flesh. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when it says he was manifested in the flesh, this encompasses not only the virgin birth, the incarnation, but also his death on the cross. Jesus died in his flesh on the cross. His body was broken on the tree. 1 Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. So the first confession is Jesus came in the flesh. I.e., he was born of a virgin, he came in the flesh, he died on the cross for our sins. What's the second confession? He was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what does it mean, vindicated by the Spirit? This means that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's talking about the resurrection. Who burst Jesus from the tomb? The Holy Spirit vindicated the death of Christ by raising Him from the dead. You see this in Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit of holiness raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we've got the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And then the third thing says, seen by angels. Who was at the empty tomb telling the women when they came, he's not here? The angels saw the resurrection. Remember Mary Magdalene? John 20, 12-13. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. He's risen. He's not here. He was seen by angels. Okay, what's the next one? Proclaimed among the nations. After his resurrection, Jesus was preached among the nations. Remember what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended back to the Father? He gave them the great commission to go to the nations with the gospel. Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go to the nations. Preach the gospel to the nations. In Luke's gospel, we have this, this in Luke 24, 46 to 48. He said to them, Jesus said, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to whom? All nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So you got his birth, life, death, resurrection, seen by angels, and this message is to be proclaimed to the nations. Okay, what's the fifth part of this confession? What's the response to the preaching of the gospel? He was believed on in the world. What happens when you take the gospel to the nations? People do what? They believe. Remember Pentecost? What happened when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost? He preaches that spirit-empowered sermon, and 3,000 people get saved on that day. In the early church, the Lord kept adding to their number those who were being saved. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So people were believing the message in the world, among the nations. And so why do we send missionaries? Why do we go to unreached people groups? Why do we take mission trips to the tribal areas of South Asia and walk into these villages and proclaim the gospel to people who've never heard the gospel before? Well, Romans 10, 13-17 tells us, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> well, how, then, will they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe on Him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. People need to hear hear the gospel in such a clear and courageous way that they can receive Jesus as their Savior and believe these things about Him. Okay, what's the final or the sixth part of this confession? He was taken up in glory. This is the ascension of Christ. You've got His birth, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, the gospel to be proclaimed to the nations, people believing upon him, and then he was taken back up to heaven. He was taken up in glory. Mark sixteen nineteen. so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So how do we summarize this confession? It's a very simple confession. We boldly and urgently confess the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the call for all people everywhere to repent and believe in him for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What's more important than that? The glory of Christ and the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So we must urgently confess this truth and defend this truth. Do you believe 
in the virgin birth of Jesus? Do you believe in the perfect life of Jesus? Do you believe in his sacrificial death on the cross? Do you believe in his glorious resurrection? Do you believe that he ascended back up to heaven? Do you believe that he's reigning as Lord at the right hand of the Father and that one day he will come back in power and glory? Do you believe that? That's our confession. Do you believe that's the only hope of the world? Do you believe that that's the only way people are going to get saved, to be reconciled to the Heavenly Father is through that message? And so until Jesus comes back in power and glory, there's an urgency. There's an urgency for us to be clear and courageous in defending and confessing this truth. We live in a world of cowardice and confusion. I don't want us to be cowards or confusing. I want us to be courageous and clear. We, more than ever, need to be courageous and clear with the gospel. So that there's no ambiguity, there's no question, there's no people wondering where we land on issues. We need to be bold, we need to be urgent, we need to be steadfast, and we need to do this with joy. Listen again, I got another John Calvin quote, but listen to what he said. Silence in the church is the removal and crushing of the truth. Silence in the church. We must not be silent. We must stand on the truth. We must defend the truth, confess the truth, and hold fast to the truth. Why? Because the church is God's house, not ours. We're the church of the living God. We're the household of faith. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. We're not the pillar and buttress of compromise. We're not a church that holds to a false gospel. We're not a church that holds to worldliness or to personal opinion. We are a church that holds to the pillar and buttress of the truth. Light in darkness. Defenders of the faith. Holding out the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world that so desperately needs clarity and courage from people who are willing to stand up and say, this is the truth. And why do we do all this? Is it so we can draw attention to ourselves? Is it so we can make a name for ourselves? Is it so we can be popular? No. Why do we do it? It's the answer for everything. Why do we do it? Because it brings glory to God alone. That's why we do everything we do for the glory of God. This should be the verse that you have memorized as your life verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We exist to display God's glory, to declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission until he comes back. And we do that with urgency. We do that with boldness. We do that with clarity. We do that because we are pillars and buttresses of the truth. So Emmanuel Baptist Church, may we be the church God's called us to be. May we be faithful to whom God has called us to be as his church. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Moments in silent prayer. 
Asking the Lord to search your heart. Would you be one that would be urgent about confessing this truth and defending this truth? And if you're here this morning and you, and you don't even understand these truths, we are so glad you're here. We'd love for you to come up after the service and talk to us about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. We want you to embrace these truths in your heart so that you would know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So would you just spend a few moments in prayer asking the Lord to search your heart and how you would respond to this truth this morning. Father, thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light to be the household of God. We submit to you as our gracious Heavenly Father. We want to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to be the family of God you've called us to be. We're thankful that you've made us the church of the living God. You are the one true and living God, and we are so thankful for your sovereignty and your power. And Lord, you've called us to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, to hold up the truth, to hold fast to the truth, to be on the solid foundation of the truth. And Lord, to be a confessional people, to confess the truths of who Christ is without compromise, without ambiguity. Lord, help us to be courageous. Help us to be clear. Lord, we know that there's going to be attacks. There's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be maligning. All manner of things will come against us when we stand for the truth. So Holy Spirit, we desperately need your help. We pray for boldness. We pray for urgency. Pray for faith. Would you help our faith when we waver, when we're weak? May we always keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Lord Jesus, we want to honor you in everything that we do as a church. We submit to you as the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's your church, not ours. You call the shots. You define the terms. You're the absolute Lord. Help us to joyfully submit to you. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you that you're coming back again, and we thank you, thankful that we've given this message to go to the nations so that they could believe upon you and be saved. Lord, help us to be a faithful church. And we ask this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen.